again. We are in the first chapter of Acts and the opening verses. Seeking as we begin our study of the book of Acts to provide a, a general outline and theme of the book itself in hopes of uh, better understanding why it was written and what the Holy Spirit intends for us to gain by our reading and our study of this book. This morning again I'm going to read the first three verses of Acts chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father, we do humbly ask that you would open our eyes and as we again were reminded in Sunday school that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the word that he has inspired, the word of God, both the living and the written word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts and our mind's eyes to that word, the written and the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless your people in this place and everywhere where your word is opened and Jesus Christ is preached and the gospel of the kingdom is preached. We pray these things, Father, for your glory and for our good, and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What led the wise men to Bethlehem? And you're thinking, oh boy, he picked the wrong notes, he's got a Christmas sermon out. No. What led the wise men to Bethlehem? This is like a, a, a preschool, Sunday school you know, class. What led the wise men to Bethlehem? Well, the star in the east, right? Well, no. The star guided them. What led them? Have you ever thought about that? Did they just you know, look up one evening and saw this really neat star and said to one another, hey, let's grab some camels and follow it? Or was there something guiding them, motivating them to depart their land, Chaldea, in Persia, and to travel many hundreds of miles across a forbidding desert to seek a king, and not merely a king, a divine king? They had the audacity and perhaps the foolishness of asking the existing king, Herod, where this king was that they might go and worship him. So while the star guided them to Bethlehem, something else led them. We know that these wise men were called the Magi. And in that area of the world, in that time of world history, the Magi were indeed the, the astrologers. They were the seers. They were the wise men of the realm. We also know that at one point in time, hundreds of years before Christ was born, the greatest of the Magi lived and ministered for the glory of God within the court of the Babylonian and later the Persian king. His name was Daniel. Daniel was the chief magus. He was the head of all of the king's astrologers and counselors and seers and wise men. It is reasonable to assume and to conclude then that the subsequent generation of Magi 
learned of this coming king from the writings of Daniel. They learned that there would be a kingdom set up and the king over this kingdom would be established by God himself. Now we don't know that the Magi were understanding, were believing in the one true God, but we have enough to know from the scriptures that they were seeking a king who was greater than any earthly king, a king who was not merely to be obeyed and to be served, but rather to be worshipped. This kingdom, we read of its prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. I want to read just two verses there, two verses that I believe are among the most significant verses in the Bible with regard to Jewish eschatology, with regard to what the Jews were looking for, what Simon, that, that wise man, saw when he held Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so that the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. And this interpretation was written down and generation after generation from Daniel's time to the time of Christ's appearing in Bethlehem, it was read, it was studied by the Magi of the East. And they knew that the kingdom of Babylon had come and it had gone. And the kingdom of Medo-Persia that displaced the Babylonian, it had come and itself had been overrun by the kingdom of Greece, which, as the prophecy said, was then divided among the four generals of the king. We know that to be true to history. And finally, that conglomerate, multi-powerful empire represented in Daniel by the, the weirdest beasts, indescribable, the empire of Rome. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never end that will never be given to another people, that will fill the whole earth as that mountain that grew out of that small stone filled the whole earth in the vision. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, gives us the beginning of the ministry of that king, Jesus Christ. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, the last clause of that verse tells us what it was that Jesus began to do and to teach during his earthly ministry. That which I maintain is now continued by Jesus through the Holy Spirit and by his apostles and the church. We read in verse 3 that he was speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The Magi were looking for a divine king. Based on the prophecies of Daniel, they recognized that in the days of that kingdom of Rome, God would set up his eternal kingdom on earth. And so we have, we have two choices, and then we also have a very poor third choice. 
God did not set up his kingdom. That's the first choice. The second choice is God did set up his kingdom. And the very poor third choice is that God tried to set up his kingdom, but his people turned him down, and so he took it away. So we have either prophecy failed, prophecy fulfilled, or prophecy foiled. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm inclined to the second one. Prophecy fulfilled. God set up his kingdom. He did not delay it. He did not fail in his purpose. But rather, he did indeed do what he said he would do hundreds of years before through the prophet Daniel. A large part of what Jesus began to do and to teach before his suffering and resurrection had to do with the kingdom. From the beginning that we just read in Matthew chapter 4 all the way through to the end, Jesus was talking about the kingdom. Now this is what has confused theologians and preachers and believers for years because he's talking about the kingdom, he's talking about the kingdom, he's talking about the kingdom, and all of a sudden we get the church. What just happened? And so some of us think, well, that is the kingdom. The church and the kingdom are the same. And others think, no, 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 the church was plan B. That's that third option, prophecy foiled. God tried, but his people would not cooperate. They would not recognize their Messiah. They rejected him. And so God put in abeyance the kingdom and brought instead this, this plan B, this thing called the church. I would submit to you that our understanding of the book of Acts and of all that God has been doing, beginning in the book of Acts to our own day, will hinge upon our understanding of the kingdom and Jesus Christ. Did it come? Did it fail? Was it foiled? Or is it being fulfilled? Those, I think, are the only reasonable options that we can think of. And I do believe that the only reasonable conclusion, knowing God as he is revealed in his word, is that it did come. It was fulfilled. It is here. It is among us, even as our Lord prophesied. But the kingdom, though it is, I believe, the greatest concept not only of the New Testament, but of the entire revelation of God in the Bible, is largely ignored today, primarily because of a teaching that is now about 150, 180 years old, that has convinced most believers in the Western world that God has delayed his kingdom, that he has put it on hold for the past 2,000 years, that he will bring his kingdom in some time, at some time in the future, and then we're told that we won't even be here. That somehow the kingdom and the church aren't even related to each other. I don't know about you, but that teaching disturbs me. Because I want to be a citizen of that kingdom. I, I am a worshiper of that king, Jesus Christ. I mean, if really, if, if the Spirit of God somehow made it clear to us that we had a choice, and I want to make it very clear that we don't have this choice, but we had a choice between being members of the church and citizens of the kingdom. May the church be empty. 
and the kingdom full. Because that's where it's at. Okay? That's the hope of eternity, is the kingdom of God through the King, Jesus Christ. Jesus taught us about the kingdom in his beginnings of his teachings and his doings. He said to Pontius Pilate, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. You say correctly that I am a king, for this I have been born. Jesus knew that he was what the Magi were seeking. The king born into this world, and for this I have come into the world. This, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. The problem with the disciples that we will see just a little bit later in Acts chapter 1, the problem with the Jews in general, the problem with that teaching I alluded to, the problem with many of us is we can't see the kingdom because we're looking for the wrong thing. Commentator Lenski writes this, it is misunderstood, speaking of the kingdom, when earthly kingdoms are used as a pattern for this spiritual concept. An earthly kingdom is a land and a nation on which the king depends. Now that's something you don't realize. When you read history and you see these mighty kings that are, that are uh, glorified in the history books and you realize they were but one man. And we have these wonderful examples of when the many decided they didn't want the one over them anymore. A king in the earthly sense is a land and a nation on which the king depends. Take his people away and the kingdom ceases. The king ceases to be king. And they too are what they are even without the king. But God in Christ makes his kingdom. It depends wholly on him and could not exist without him. God's kingdom is found wherever God is and rules by his power, grace, and glory. That is the kingdom of which the Bible speaks, of which Jesus taught, and of which I believe the book of Acts gives us the fulfillment, the inauguration, the beginning of that kingdom. I mentioned last week, that much of what Jesus taught in his beginnings of his ministry was in the form of parables. And many of the most profound and sometimes the most confusing parables are known as the parables of the kingdom. Because Jesus would begin the parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And by the way, I do believe those terms are synonymous and not separate. The kingdom of heaven is like. And there were two consistent principles that come out of those parables, the parables of the kingdom. The first principle is that the activity of the kingdom is hidden beneath the surface. The results of which become manifest in the world. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man goes and finds. He, he sells all that he has and goes and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, hidden in three pecks of meal, the effect of which permeates the entire loaf, and the outward appearance of that effect is, of course, the loaf grows. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of the seeds, but when it is grown, becomes a tree in which the birds of the air alight. You see, the kingdom of heaven is beneath the surface. Even the dragnet, the fishing net, 
is cast beneath the surface of the waters and it is dragged along between the ships under the water. And not until it is brought to the surface can you see the results of its work. So the first principle of the kingdom is that its activity is not visible. It is not ostentation. It is not military prowess. It is not political statesmanship. It's under the surface, like leaven, like a mustard seed, like seed scattered in the field. And that is the, the power of the kingdom, is that it works beneath the visible range of man. It is only visible to the eyes of faith. The second consistent principle of the parables of the kingdom is that we are taught that during this activity, the king, the master, the vineyard owner, however form it takes within the parable, will not be here. Right? He will go away for a time. The ten virgins, virgins. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, and delaying, and delaying, delaying so much that they fell asleep, the oil ran out in five of the lamps. We're told in the parable of the talents, for it is just like a man about to go on a long journey. So these two principles of the parables of the kingdom teach us the nature of the kingdom and what to expect. It's really kind of amazing, I think, that this has been missed. Even by the disciples who, who in this passage in verse 6, chapter 1 of Acts, and so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? I said last week, Jesus said to the disciples, I have many things to teach you and you are not able. They were rather dense and they maintained their density. Is it this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They had it wrong on several points. First of all, they were expecting a different type of kingdom than the one that had come. Secondly, Jesus himself said that the kingdom wasn't being restored to Israel. It was being taken from them. And that, I believe, is something that the book of Acts presents to us in very vivid and very sad detail. Luke in Acts deals with another aspect of the kingdom as Jesus began to teach it during his earthly ministry. And that is, on the one hand, the taking of the kingdom from one people and the giving of the kingdom to another. In Matthew chapter 21, we read, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Now I want to say as a caveat, because I do not want to go there, this does not mean it won't be given back. Eschatology is fraught with what role do the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob play in the future plans of God. Paul deals with this, of course, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Powerful passages that do not actually bear upon what we're studying in Acts. Whether or not the kingdom will be given back to the Jews is not the issue. The issue is it was being taken away. 
Jesus' beginning in his teaching concerning the nation of Israel and the kingdom of God predicted what would happen due to their rejection. He said, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. Now that passage is immediately before the one where Jesus says, therefore God will take the kingdom from you and give it to a people producing the fruit thereof. Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being cast out. This is a sober judgment. To the generations that rejected Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah, this judgment was more tragic and more damning than the exile to Babylon or even the generations in Egypt. This was that hardening that Paul says has come upon the hearts of God's people Israel, a blinding of their eyes that they might not be able to see the revelation of God's grace in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we learn from Jesus' teaching that there was a particular generation that would most powerfully suffer for this rejection, a generation that would be held accountable for all of God's martyrs from Abel to Zechariah, a generation that passed between the crucifixion of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. This was a generation to which the gospel of the kingdom was first preached, and while many hundreds and thousands of Jews entered into the kingdom, many more did not. This was the generation in which the gospel was preached to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. This was the generation that was losing the kingdom, as it was being taken from them and given to another. And this is the generation about which we read in the book of Acts. These are the events we know of as we read through the book of Acts. It is evident that the temple is still standing, that there is no evidence of the Roman invasion of Judea and of Israel and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and of the temple. It is still standing. But we also can perceive as we read through the book of Acts that the tensions and the pressures that were boiling up within Judea as the Jewish people were chafing under the burden and the bondage of the Roman oppression, and that would boil over in the 60s leading up to that war, leading up to that destruction, these were evident already. We see these in the, in the Jewish response to the Apostle Paul toward the end of the book, when he is in Jerusalem, when he is in Judea. The, the anger, the enmity that they have toward him, the violence they wish to do to him but also the relationship that they have developed with their Roman overlords is one of tension, one of bitterness, one of hatred. The kingdom was being taken from Israel, but I again say not to be delayed for 2,000 plus years. This teaching that says that the kingdom is yet to come and that the church has nothing to do with the kingdom, 
renders a large majority of Scripture of no benefit to us. So that when we read 2 Timothy 3.16, we read that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Many of us who believe that the kingdom did not come, that the kingdom was taken away, that the kingdom was delayed, would have to say of that verse, some Scripture is profitable. We might say that all Scripture is God-breathed, but frankly, it's not all profitable if we are not somehow in this picture. But indeed, Jesus said that the kingdom was being taken so that it might be given. Not taken away, not removed from the earth, but taken from one people and given to another. That is what we read about in the book of Acts. It's not a plan B, folks. God is not foiled. God is not frustrated by the rejection of the Messiah on the part of Israel. This was also prophesied. They would not hear the report. They would not hear of the redemptive grace of God through the servant of Yahweh, the Messiah. Judged by the immediate setting, as I said earlier, the church may very well appear as a reaction by God to Israel's rejection of its Messiah. We wonder as we read through Acts, what happened? We're waiting for the kingdom, and all of a sudden we're given the church. But we have to apply what we know about God and about His Word that does not go forth in vain, does not return to Him without accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent out. We understand this about God, who straightens and no man can bend, who bends and no man can straighten, who knows the end from the beginning and whose will will be done. And when we apply that knowledge, we realize that there's something going on here, that the church is not some reaction and some plan B, but rather it is the visible manifestation of that underlying work of the kingdom of which we learned when we read the parables. It's where the leaven is being put into the dough of the world. It's the mustard seed that is growing into that really large tree. It is the dragnet through which the gospel of the kingdom is bringing in the chosen of God, as well as many who in that day will be picked up and thrown away. It is where the wheat, but also the tares, are growing. So all, of the parable of the, all the parables of the kingdom speak not of the church, but of the kingdom. And when we encounter the church, we don't encounter the kingdom, but rather we encounter the, the world face of the kingdom. We might say the gates of the kingdom. The gates of the kingdom are through Jesus Christ, whose body is the church of which he is the glorious head. This is what we learn when we read the book of Acts. But the mistake that we make, and we continue to make, and we continue to struggle, and Paul even struggled in his planting and his nourishing and his admonishing and even rebuking of his churches, and that is the relationship of the Jew and the Gentile. Isn't that still an issue? 2,000 years later, within the church, there is still confusion about Israel and the church. And I believe that the confusion begins, and much of it is due 
to a misunderstanding about salvation and Israel. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. Salvation comes from Israel, not into Israel. We get the arrows backwards. Salvation radiates. The grace of God in, re in redemption radiates out from his chosen people into the world. This was the promise given to Abraham at the very beginning of all of this. That in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We, we tend to think of Israel as the center rather than the source. And even verse 8 of Acts chapter 1 teach us, teaches us of this radiating power of the grace of the gospel of the kingdom in Jerusalem first and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the earth. It radiates out from Israel, not back into. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. It is from Israel. And so the pattern of Luke's narrative of his discourse regarding the, the unfolding of this kingdom hidden from most eyes is exactly that. It is a pattern of radiating circles. We begin in Jerusalem in the upper room. We end in Rome. We begin with the disciples who were the first to walk with Jesus who were the, the apostles to the circumcised, men who ministered primarily, Peter, John, James, within Jerusalem. We end with the apostle to the uncircumcised, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, who travels the known world, the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. When we reach the last book, or the last chapter, we haven't reached the end. We envision, just as a rock is dropped in water and we see the radiating bands going out, we know that even when they have reached the horizon of our sight, they keep on going. When they've reached the horizon of Luke's sight, with Paul under house arrest in Rome, still preaching the gospel even into the court of Caesar, we can know that those radiating bands of grace and redemption will keep going outward and are still going outward. It is true that it remains the birthright of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The kingdom that was promised, the blessings of redemption that were promised through the prophets, through the law, through the patriarchs, but for now, they have rejected that birthright. And this is to the great blessing, as Paul teaches us in Romans, of the Gentile world. This is Luke's theme throughout. And so we read Paul in Luke chapter, in Acts chapter 13, saying this, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, speaking of the Jews, since you repudiate it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. I love 
But Luke goes on to record immediately after. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God. And may we who are Gentiles continue and even excel and exceed that rejoicing and glorifying God for his immeasurable grace in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are almighty and that your word is forever settled in the heavens. Nothing that you have said would come to pass will fail of its purpose. And you prophesied through Daniel of this mighty kingdom that would fill the whole world. And in the days of the empire of Rome, you sent forth your only begotten son, that stone cut without hands that rolled down the mountain and has crushed all kingdoms before it. And Father, we do pray that we would study your word and our hearts to know that we are indeed citizens of that great kingdom, subjects of that great and awesome and eternal king. And that as with the Gentiles who heard of this wonderful grace of God turning to them in redemption, we might indeed rejoice and glorify Almighty God, our Redeemer, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand this morning for the benediction, the closing chapter of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let